Cards Against Humanity is sponsoring both this episode and the whole Wolf Pop launch. Uh, they asked us not to read an ad, so enjoy the show. Hey, welcome to Reading Aloud. I'm your host, Nick Cordry. Thanks so much for tuning in to the very first episode, the pilot episode of Reading Aloud. Uh, it's a variety show of sorts, I guess. Uh, a variety show celebrating the written word. Uh, we're going to have a bunch of stuff read to you every week. Uh, comedy essays, uh, short stories, letters. Uh, we have a letter being read uh, in this week's episode, in fact. Uh, excerpts from novels, nonfiction journalism, so you name it, really. Uh, if it involves the written word, it will be read aloud to you. Um, and we'll also have a whole bunch of interviews to go along with the readings uh, with uh, authors and people involved in the book industry, experts, academics, uh, musicians and actors, and, and people of note who enjoy the written word. Plus, get this, there will also be a monthly book club. Yes, an internet book club where you can join us and participate and be a part of this book club podcast experience. So each month I'll choose a book and gather two or three folks together to talk about said book. Uh, this month's book, November's book, is Wolf in White Van by John Darneal. Uh it was just long listed for the National Book Award, and John is the uh, leader of this, uh, the indie band, uh, The Mountain Goats, um, and I'm hearing amazing things about this book. Uh, it came out about a month ago or so, maybe a little bit longer than that, um, and he's a pretty compelling figure, so I'm intrigued to see what the novel is all about. So go get it. Go buy it. Go to your local independent bookstore or audible.com, wherever you want to go. Get it, read it, and you have the month of November to read this book. So uh, then at the last month of November, uh, we will have a special episode devoted entirely to the book, and you can email in your questions and your thoughts about it, and then we'll talk about it on the air. Uh, so for this first book, uh, Wolf and White Van, we have Paul Shear, uh, John Ross Bowie, and April Richardson joining the book party. So... All of us are going to read the book, and then we'll get in together and talk about it. So you can send in your thoughts and your ideas about the book to readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. Readingaloudpodcast at gmail.com. Go buy the book, read it, and uh, be a part of the show. But let's go on to the content, shall we? Let's do this. Our first piece is written by Simon Rich, who is an incredible writer and uh, such a unique comedic voice. I first discovered him in The New Yorker, uh, but he's written for SNL for a while, and I think he's now on staff at Pixar. Um, he has a bunch of uh, collections of his stuff. It's published, and this essay is one of my favorites. It is just outstanding. It was read aloud at my UCB show here in Hollywood at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. I do a monthly show where instead of interviews and stuff, I just have comedians and actors come out and read comic essays. Uh, and this was uh, pulled from one of that one of those live shows. I think it was about a month ago or so. Um, and it was read by Brian Stack. Uh, and Stack has been working for Conan for, I think, 16 or 17 years as a, as a writer and performer. Uh, you've seen him as uh, Frankenstein, um, <laughs> The Interrupter. He's a member of the Slipnuts. So if you're a Conan fan, you know who Brian Stack is. Um, he's played countless characters. Anyway, he's the best. And he absolutely killed it with this story. This is uh, Brian reading uh, this piece aloud. It's called Guy Walks Into a Bar, and here's Brian. Guy Walks Into a Bar by Simon Ridge. So a guy walks into a bar one day and he can't believe his eyes. There in the corner, there's this one foot tall man in a little tuxedo playing a tiny grand piano. <laughs> so the guy says to the bartender, where'd he come from? And the bartender's like, there's a genie in the men's room who grants wishes. So the guy runs in the men's room, and sure enough, there's this genie, and the genie's like, your wish is my command. So the guy's like, okay, I wish for world peace. And there's this big cloud of smoke, and the room fills up with geese. So the guy walks out of the men's room, and he's like, hey, bartender, I think your genie might be hard of hearing. And the bartender's like, no kidding, you think I wished for a 12-inch pianist? <laughs> So the guy, the 
guy processes this. And he's like, does that mean you wish for a 12-inch penis? And the bartender's like, yeah. Why? What'd you wish for? And the guy's like, world peace. So the bartender is understandably ashamed. And the guy orders a beer, like everything's normal, but it's obvious that something has changed between him and the bartender. And the bartender's like, uh, I feel like I should explain myself. And the guy's like, you don't have to. But the bartender continues in a hushed tone, and he's like, I have what's known as penile dysmorphic disorder. Basically, uh, what that means is I fixate on my size. It's, it's not that I'm small down there, I'm actually within the normal range. Whenever I see it though, I feel inadequate. And the guy feels sorry for him. So he's like, where do you think that comes from? And the bartender's like, I don't know, my, my dad and I had a tense relationship. Uh, he used to cheat on my mom and I knew it was going on, but I didn't tell her. I think it's wrapped up in that somehow. <laughs> and the guy's like, have you ever seen anyone about this? And the bartender's like, oh yeah, I started seeing a therapist four years ago. Uh, but she says we barely scratched the surface. So at this point, the 12-inch pianist finishes up his sonata. And he walks over to the bar and climbs onto one of the stools. And he's like, listen, I couldn't help but overhear. I uh, overheard the end of that conversation. That I never told anyone this before, but... My dad and I didn't speak for the last 10 years of his life. And the bartender's like, tell me more about that. And he pours the pianist a tiny glass of whiskey. And the 12-inch pianist is like, oh, he's a total monster. He beat us all, told me once I was an accident. And the bartender's like, that's horrible. And the 12-inch pianist shrugs and he's like, you know what, I'm over it. He always said I would never amount to anything because of my height. Well, now look at me, I'm a professional musician. And the pianist starts to laugh, but it's a forced kind of laughter. And you can see the pain behind it. And then he's like, when he was in the hospital, he had one of the nurses call me. I was going to go see him, bought a plane ticket and everything, but before I could make it back to Tampa, and he starts to cry. And he's like, I just wish I'd had a chance to say goodbye to my old man. And all of a sudden, there's this big cloud of smoke, and a beat-up Plymouth Voyager appears. And the pianist is like, I said old man, not old van! And everybody laughs. And the pianist is like, your genie's hard of hearing. And the bartender says, no kidding. You think I wish for a 12-inch pianist? <laughs> and as soon as the words leave his lips, he regrets <laughs> Because the pianist is like, oh my god, you didn't really want me. And the bartender's like, no, no, it's not like that. You know, trying to backpedal. And the pianist smiles ruefully and says, once an accident, always an accident. <laughs> and he drinks all of his whiskey. And the bartender's like, Brian, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. And the bartender's like, he's just, just beside himself with remorse. And the pianist smashes his whiskey glass against the wall and says, well, I didn't mean that. And the bartender's like, whoa, calm down. And the pianist is like, fuck you. And he's really drunk because he's only one foot tall. His talents for alcohol is extremely low. And he's like, fuck you, asshole, fuck you! And he starts throwing punches, but he's too small to do any real damage. And eventually he just collapses in the bartender's arms. And suddenly he has this revelation and he's like, my God, I'm just like him. I'm just like him! And he starts weeping. And the bartender's like, no, you're not. You're better than he was. <laughs> and the pianist is like, that's not true, I'm worthless. And the bartender grabs the pianist by the shoulders and says, damn it, Brian, listen to me. My life was hell before you entered it. Now I look forward to every day. You're so talented and kind. 
you light up this whole bar? How you light up my whole life? If I had a second wish, you know what it would be? It would be for you to realize how beautiful you are. And the bartender kisses the pianist on the lips. So the guy who's been watching all this is surprised because uh, he didn't know the bartender was gay. It doesn't bother him, it just catches him off guard, you know? So he goes to the bathroom to give him a little privacy. And there's the genie. So the guy's like, hey genie, you need to get your ears fixed. And the genie's like, who says they're broken? And he opens the door, revealing the happy couple who are kissing and gaining strength from each other. And the guy's like, well done. And then the genie says, that bartender's tiny penis is going to seem huge from the perspective of his one foot tall. And the graphic nature of the comment kind of kills the moment. And the genie's like, I'm sorry, I should have left that part unsaid. I always do that, I take things too far. And the guy's like, don't worry about it. Let's just grab a beer. It's on me. That was Brian Stack reading Simon Rich's Guy Walks Into a Bar uh, live at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Stack just absolutely killed it. God, he was so funny. Uh, we're going to take a very short break. We'll be right back with more Reading Aloud. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Reading Aloud with me, Nate Cordry. If you like what you're hearing, why not check out another show on the new Wolf Pop Network, like Happy, Sad, Confused with Josh Horowitz. In each episode of Happy, Sad, Confused, Josh goes deep with the hottest actors and filmmakers working in television and film today. It is a must-listen. It's fantastic. You just need to go to www.wolfpop.com and listen to the, the shockingly candid conversations with the likes of Woody Allen, Michael Fassbender. You heard of him? Yeah, he's a famous person. And Daniel Radcliffe. It's each and every week on Happy, Sad, Confused. There is a brand new episode with Neil Patrick Harris, available today at wolfpop.com. So check it out. Hey, we're back. It's me, Nate Cordry. Uh, let's move on to an interview, shall we? You've been read to, so let's have someone compelling come in and talk to you about their reading habits. Uh, Amy Mann, who I'm such a huge fan of, came into the studio, and she talked about... Uh, her music career, um, her time at Largo, uh, working with Ted Leo on their new collaboration called The Both. Um, and she also talks a lot about books that she likes and doesn't like and sort of her reading habits. Um, and she was so great and funny and down to earth. And this is the great Amy Mann. Just don't sound dumb. It's, it's, uh, oh, it's already too late. Ugh. This is going to be... Yeah, I'm going to be, gonna be look, you know, it's good to have, you have your intellectual bookish guest, guests and then you have like some real dum-dums. Yeah. You know, I mean, there there are people, do you know people who don't read at all? Oh, yes. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't They're even around. Understand, <laughs> I don't even understand. Yeah. It. And some of them are in like positions of power. Yeah, I don't understand. Yeah. It. It's quite, oh boy. <laughs> I mean, I used to be one of those people, but like then, I don't know, you sort of mature and realize that there's yeah. more to life than getting stoned and playing video games, you know? I have not realized that. Fair enough. <laughs> no, I haven't. I'm, I'm, I actually, I was one of those like bookie kids who just read. Well, we, maybe yeah. perhaps, have we started? Have we started? Have we started? We're yeah, starting. We, okay. we're, now we're on the, we're on the internet yeah. right now. I, yeah, I was, I was a, the, the quiet bookie kid who sat in the corner reading and I actually wasn't even that interested in TV like books were totally my escape not that I uh, ever retained anything right and and having having said that and I know that we'll sort of get back to the to the to the book part but um as soon as I agreed to do this I realized that it was <laughs> 
it was completely crazy because I am one of those people, like, I love to read, but I have a terrible memory. I don't rem- ever remember the titles of books I've yeah, read. Yeah. I don't remember who wrote them. And then I don't really remember what they're about. So that's it's kind of like hard to talk about a book <laughs> where you can kind of vaguely describe... I don't know. I think it had was a blue a cover. Guy. Yeah, I'll remember a uh, little bit of the cover. A, yeah. a guy wrote it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so did you go to your bookcase and like look at your to sort of jog your memory about what I you, did? I yeah. did. I I I went to. Um, yeah. Well, of course, we, we, there's like a little room that is that has shelves all in it. That was, you know, the previous owners had obviously set up as a library, so we call it the library. But but my husband has taken it over with. Uh, filling it up full of equipment. Yeah. Because um, he's a musician, also, as you yeah. know, and uh, and does a lot of work from home. So so it's 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 kind of hard to get to the books. So there are just kind of stacks of books on the floor and in the ground. And um, but I did I you know for the books that I could see peering over the stacks <laughs> of equipment, I, I made some lists of of writers just to remind myself of like who yeah. did I, who did I used to be really into reading? Yeah. I'm the same exact way. I know um, there are books that I love that I've read in the last five or six years that I n- remember loving and being really passionate about and like pitching them to people. Yeah. But I can't tell you what Visit from the Goon Squad is about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I yeah. love that book yeah. and I think it's fantastic, but I don't remember what it's about. I, I hear you. I think for me it's enough to retain the yeah. impression that I liked it. And uh, well, here's another thing that happens to me. Um, I mean, I do like to read when I'm on the road. Uh, I, I had a brief flirtation with, a, you know, a Kindle, and it just, the, the Kindle thing just doesn't work for me. So, so I take books on the road, but uh, so it's always like what looks like it might be interesting. I'll read about a half a page to see if I like the writing style because yeah. if I like the writing style, I don't really care what it's about. The first page? No, I just did a random page yeah. inside. And it has to be in paperback because I, I got to carry it around. But once I'm done, I, I leave it in the hotel room because, I you know, I mean, you can't carry five books around. Yeah. And uh, – and I have to make a determination. Do I realistically think I will really need to read this again? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, there have been a few regrets like, oh, I kind of want, well, that was, I kind of wanted to read that again. Yeah, like, I didn't yeah. think that I would need to, but now I have the the yen. Of course, I don't remember the title or who wrote it. Right, so <laughs> right. I'm, uh, but it was about a whale. Yeah. I just don't <laughs> it was about a whale. know what the book was. <laughs> that you know what that weirdly narrows it down. There's not that many. <laughs> There's like four. <laughs> <laughs> I defy you to name the other three whale <laughs> <male> books. <laughs> I'm assuming there's some sort of whale uh, a study of whales. Yeah. Um you can go on Amazon right now and search whale books. Um my guest is Amy Mann. And we're talking about uh, music and books today. Um, you said you do read on the on the I road. I do, yeah. Do you have um, like after sound check? You have that lump of time. Yeah. Right. That's the book lump. It is. And then in your bunk later. Yeah. Then, yeah. And the the thing about the book, like the sweet spot you're really trying to hit, is that it's riveting enough. So that when it's interrupted by you know by by a fairly long period of time that you can pick it up again and and still you know follow what's happening or be yeah. interested and and not not lose your enthusiasm, but that it's not so riveting that it keeps you up till four in the morning in your bunk where you really need to be you know getting some sleep. Do you remember the last time that that happened? Well, that was the and of course I don't remember the title, but you'll know it's like the magician one, not the not Harry Potter, but like that. Like it was very. I can't believe I'm having to describe it. <laughs> it's like, like old timey magicy. Uh, yes, you and know what I, I'm talking about. I also about. don't know the title. And it but was I, really. Yes. Yeah, it was really, really good. Not Jonathan Strange in the. No, that's yeah, that is the one. That's yeah, the Jonathan one. Strange. Yeah, 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 yeah. And Mr. The, and Mr. Mr. Magoo. Bubbles. I Mr. Magorium's <laughs> Fun Emporium. What is that? <laughs> Magic Emporium? What is that movie? Can Terrible. you believe that I like don't remember the title to that one? Yes. <laughs> Mr. Norrell. Wait a minute. Mr. Norrell and Jonathan mm. Strange? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's oh it. Oh, my God. Well I feel like done. a genius. Well done. I feel like Found a genius. It. For, I have actually read books 
almost to the end before oh, I no. before it occurred <laughs> to me that I have I've bought them twice. Come on, and read them, and I remember which one it was. It was uh, Steve Martin's Shop Girl because it's like that yeah. was one that would appear in the airport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The airport bookstore. Yeah, and I and I remember going like. Oh yeah, I want. I've been meaning to. I've been meaning to read it. I did read it. We were just in the hallway. It, rebought it and reread it, and about three quarters of the way through, like, I'm pretty sure I read this before. <laughs> oh my god! Don't. Isn't it? I mean, ten pages. Yeah, this is. This is similar to something I read, but it's it's not the same book. Fifty pages in. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's the the characters' names are the same. They're oh well, going I to never remember. You right. know what? I just give my brain permission to not remember names. I'm like, right. you're never going to remember it. Don't even try. Like, don't. Because <laughs> otherwise, like, I, I'll have That's to. Really funny. I'll have to like write it down. Then it becomes like a test. No, then like, it's not. It then it's no fun. It's not worth doing. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you. So do you? If you're gearing up, and you know, they give you the 15 minute call to go on stage to play a gig. Do you still have a book in your hand, or is that too distracting? You're like, I need to focus on what I'm about to do with my uh, I, creative well, energy. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's less creative energy than, you know, like, I have to curl my hair or something, you know, or put, yeah, yeah, put, yeah. My, put my gear on, my protective gear. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Safety first. Yeah. 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 I have to do the waterproofing. Right. <laughs> do you have, um, a lot of people I've talked to have, and this is the same way with music with me, I have like one or two friends who I trust who are the music right. hoarders, basically, and they know everything about everyone. Right. I need, the, they, I need the names of those people. They're great people. Because I don't listen to music. I will give them to okay. you. Um, and every few months they just say, hey, man, check this out. Oh. You're like, what the fuck? Is, oh, my. And it just changes your life. Okay. I want, yeah, um, I need those people. Do you have anyone, if you don't have someone like that for music, do you have someone like that for books that you trust? To kind of recommend similar, that you have. Uh, I think you know who's you, you know who's who's recommended some stuff that I like is Kevin Sesha. You know Kevin. Uh, he's mm-hmm. a he's a he's no. a comic. Um, I, he's sort of back and forth between L.A. and New York. But yeah, he's a he's a he's a reader. Yeah, he's read. I think the last thing he recommended was Charles Portis, who I really did. I really really liked um, the names of books I can't necessarily mm-hmm. I feel like I've, I've I read them all at a clip and then I and then they merged into one big book yeah, he yeah. wrote True Grit which was a weirdly unrepresentative like a weird historical anomaly like that's not his writing yeah okay but okay. his writing style is really great and and yeah and like I said before like the the style is <clears throat> that's that's uh that's mostly what I care about yeah, like yeah. if somebody's got a florid style. I don't like magic realism. Neither I, do I. I'm like, oh, I don't. I need to know. Although that, you know, the Jonathan Strange. Like, what oh, I liked right. about it is that it 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 uh, it set up a world, and it was very consistent within that world. You know, there were there weren't. Um, they made it seem very prosaic within that world. Yeah. And uh, and I and I like that because it didn't. It read more like Dickens than it did. You know, sort of right. like a magicy thing. Right. Um, yeah, so I like kind of like a flatter style, although I would say F. Scott Fitzgerald is a big favorite, and his style is a little, um, you know, it's more, it, it, it's not florid, but like it is, it is yeah. a little more poetic. Yeah, he's like, poetic, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's talking about um, everyday things and uh, uh, reasonable conversations between people that you believe, Yeah. but, uh, but the dialogue and the, and the way that th- those worlds are described is very sort of beautiful yeah. and poetic. His, yeah, his description is very poetic. But it's also rooted in, in, it's also grounded, too. He sort of does both, which, yeah. I, which I think is really great. Yeah. As opposed to like Hemingway, which I feel is just, every sentence is five words. He's like that's it. Yeah, and I, I certainly when I was younger, like really appreciated his flatness. But I think you appreciate his flatness because you it allows you to, to assume, this kind of um, pseudo uh, toughness. Like it's it's almost, yeah. it's like a writing style. Like I mean, it's it's tough. Like him, it's it's sort of like yeah. it, you you put on a on the you know a, a, like a leather jacket a little bit like when yep. you're like Whoa, what I'm yep. a man of few words yeah. Drink whiskey, and if you Action, want to fight, yeah. I'll fucking fight you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think I really liked that when I was when I was younger, and then and then later I'm like, oh, get over yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read. Uh, I had never read it. The sun also rises. 
uh, last year or the year before, and it was gr- I loved it. Yeah. I, l- yeah. I was That's totally— That's the one I've read over and over and Oh, over. man, is that—it's so fun. Yeah, it is fun. Being it's a part really, of that world is so cool. There's a lot of really funny passages where, like, you know, yeah. a couple of the characters sort of joking back and forth, and you're like, that's—I love their— they're, they're riffing. They're doing yeah. a riff, and I, yeah. I like that. They're young, smart, drunk, Yeah, you know, Americans uh, stumbling around Spain and just giving each other shit and falling in and out of love. Yeah. And, it's great. You just want to go to a cafe and just sit and drink with your friends at yeah. 10 in the morning and start giving each other <laughs> shit and fall in love with someone who doesn't love you back. Yeah. Um, what and happened then, with And the- then have a terrible groin injury. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, what happened with the Kindle? It just didn't feel right in your hands. It just was weird. Um, I did. I had a Kindle who I gave to Kevin Sesha, uh, who I, I personalized it. Um, what do you mean you personalized no, it? No, no. I just, I realized... I had a Kindle who I gave to Kevin Session. Oh, just, yes. Why would I say who for an object? Um, and, then, uh, and, then I had, um, and then I had an iPad, and I thought, like, this is, iPad's great. Like, yes. Yeah. But I just don't, I didn't like reading. I like, I don't know, I like having the thing and knowing where in the thing I am. Yeah. And that, uh, I, yeah, I, it's too, uh, I, I, it's, it helps to have a thing in my like the object in my hand. I feel the same way. I, w- I was um, on tour for a year doing a play. Jesus Christ. Al- Holy shit. Oh, my God. <sighs> That's a whole other podcast. Oh, man. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> a, a nightmare. I did, I did six months, and I took like a month off and did another six months. And, uh, and so I wanted to br- – so I had to bring uh, – I didn't have room in my trunk. Yeah. The reactor had a trunk to like put their shit in. Wow. And uh, – and so I used the Kindle for, and it was just terrible. It was just so depressing. And I would do the thing that I would buy a book in a town and try to read it over a week or two and then just leave it yeah. somewhere in a, in a hotel room because I couldn't carry it in my bag. But uh, I just, I can't, uh, it seems false. It's like the, the writer never attended you to, I don't know. I mean, technology is changing. We have to sort of adjust. But it just felt so cold. And uh, I, I, need, I need to smell I know. A book, you know? Well, also, yeah. I mean, there, there's a that that sort of library scent of ink and yeah. pages and paper. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, it's it's very comforting. Uh, yeah, it really is just a different experience. And, and I I think I've re-embraced, like, I, after the flirtation with the Kindle and the, and the iPad, I, I just, I'm diving in. Like, yeah. I feel like I'm diving in, man. I'm buying hardbacks. Like, I never used to buy hardbacks. <laughs> like, I'm buying them. I'm buying yeah. Anything I will buy any I will buy any book I will buy like dumb things that I know that I'm never and I'm like I don't care yeah I'll you know I'll give it to the to the used bookstore I'll exactly. give it to out, out of the closet like if I don't have room and I don't have room for it like we we have bookshelves in every room and I there there is no more room for anything and I don't care I'm like I'm going to single handedly yeah. keep keep the publishing business afloat goddamn right yeah how many weeks into a tour do you go oh fuck how am I Oh, I just want to go home. Well, we have. There's kind of almost a, 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 an old saw that we have in the in the band among the musicians, which is that um, three weeks into it, you all, the first three weeks, all you wanted to do is go home, and then and then after that, you never want to go home again. It's sort of like a point, the twenty one day point, where you cross over and you're like, nope, I know, like I'm. <laughs> I'm in. Do, do you I'm know in the duration. because you've done it for a while? Do you know like like when it tips over? Yeah. Like, oh, this can, is the day. Yeah, you can feel it, <laughs> and it really is like right because my keyboard player Jevin Bruni said that, and then I sort of I started to notice. So I would get that feeling, and I would go, "How many days? How many yeah, days yeah." I, so I don't go out more than three weeks at a time because you do That's smart. like there's a sort of madness sets in. Yeah, I'm sure it's just too much. Too much for the human yeah. brain to, to. Yeah, I don't know how these guys do it. Like the, absolutely do not know how. I, I do not know how. They do There's like no a, way ten months it. out of the year. It doesn't, I, and I, and like no matter how comfortable you make it, it doesn't. It's not a matter of comfort, and it's not a matter of seeing. I mean, I okay. Excuse me for this metaphor, but in a way, it, it's it. apt. Like <clears throat> there, it, 
You know how, like, they say in prison, like, what if you have a long stretch, you sort of just don't even yeah. want to talk to anybody? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you just want to put your head down and get it done, you know, like, get through it? Yeah. It's sort of like that. Like, it becomes jarring to to keep in touch, you know, like that keeping in touch. And it's sort of, it doesn't make sense. Like, you can't. Yeah. It's more painful almost I to get try it. to keep in, quote, keep in touch Absolutely. With, with people at home or, you know, your family or whatever, like. This is – it's funny because I'm actually writing a song about this. Um, I'm – just to try to nutshell this, I'm, I'm – I have a record called The Forgotten Arm that over the last several years there's been been talk and work with a, a, a playwright and in, in turning it into a musical. Mm. And um, – and I'm working with my producer to write new songs for it. And we're, we're writing a song about this very thing, like wow. what it's like to sort of be, be on, the, on the tour bus and like how, you know, that becomes your new family. And, it, and it's sort of this foxhole mentality where it's like it's us against them. And that happens really, really fast. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your experience in Boston. I didn't – in doing some research for this interview, I didn't know that you went to – Berkeley. Yeah, I went to Berkeley College of Music. But of course, I four semesters and then I, you know, quit. Just like everybody, like nobody graduates. Uh, <laughs> who was the uh, like your freshman year? Who was the the graduation speaker? Do you remember? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I don't think I ever attended any of that kind of stuff. I don't yeah. even know if there was that. That makes it sound like it was a real school. Like <laughs> my experience of it is more that it's almost a trade school, right? Which it is really. You yeah, know, yeah, you yeah. Take you know your classes are, you know, the ensemble classes where where you you know play charts with other musicians, or the ear training class, or the right. listening and analysis class where you listen to music and you analyze the chord structures and you know like what the hi hats doing and right. where the horns are coming in. It was still a jazz school when I went. Yeah. But being uh, in Boston, when you were there, that scene, it, that was like, for 10 or 15 years, Boston had a legitimate music scene. It was fantastic. And it was really supportive. I think it launched a lot of bands. Yeah. Um, you know, I th- certainly the Cars came out of that scene, and the band I was in Till Tuesday came out of that scene. And, um, you know, it was, my, my experience of it was that uh, I... Um, I mean, my first band was this band called The Young Snakes, and it was this real, like, noise art, you know, like it was totally unlistenable. But I, <laughs> you know, but I, it was a trio, and we got to gigs in a cab. We, like, shoved all our equipment to the Fucking back a. of, like, one of those big checker cabs. Yeah. And um, we, I, I supported myself playing gigs around with, like, this, you know, just opening for whatever really? bands were. There were so many clubs, and I, I mean... Mind you, it was, uh, you know, I lived in a t- shitty place. Sure. And, you Where did know, you live? I lived in, I lived on that street, Hemingway, that was, that oh, was yeah. between, or or whatever, it was between Hemingway. It was like right by Berkeley. Yeah. And it was. Uh, it's a beautiful street now. a horrible room right. with, where roaches would fall on you from the ceilings, that kind of thing. I mean, it was really, it was really a dump. But uh, I, you know, I actually, we supported ourselves by. Wow. I mean, it, you know, very, very, very low, low college levels, but uh, yeah, but but we did it. I mean, we played. I don't know, four four times a week, just wow. just in town. I mean, there must have been twenty five clubs. Yeah, um, can we talk about Largo for a second? Yeah, I um, I didn't come to California until I was twenty eight, but I had a friend, one of my music friends, who somehow got copies of Morning Becomes Eclectic. Like in the '90s, when um, Chris Doritos was doing it, uh-huh. and that's when I first sort of and he would had he had cassette tapes of these shows that he would give to me, <laughs> and uh, and that's when I first sort of like heard about Largo, and it seems to me that it's sort of it's a really like important Los Angeles like cultural institution. Like when it was when it first opened, uh, and the people who sort of came together, musicians and comedians, um, it seems like like th- that what was happening there when it first sort of started and expanded was like really important. A lot of great people came out of that scene, and I wonder what it was. Yeah. What was it like to be? Were you part of it as it sort of 
was spawned? I, I think probably, probably like pretty pretty soon. I mean, I think I got got into it pretty. You know, well, how I got into it was um, John Bryan had had. Uh, I, mean, I don't know if you know. Yeah. I don't even know how to describe him. <clears throat> you know, kind of this eccentric. I'm fascinated music, by him. Musical genius who. Um, he had produced uh, my first two solo records, and oh. uh, and then he he moved out here with a couple of other musician friends of mine, and he became friendly with Mark Flanagan, who owned Largo. And I think right when he moved out here, became friends with with Flanagan, that's when Largo mm. started. So I, and then I moved out like I don't know maybe a year, maybe two years after after John did. So so it was pretty early on, and. Um, Oh, yeah, because Largo hadn't – Mark Flanagan was doing shows. He was kind of putting shows together at the Mint and um, this other place and, like, f- further west. I, I can't remember. Yeah. Um, Alligator Lounge or something. And uh, uh, so, yeah, so Largo was – kind of happened, like, right – you know, like, right when I got here. And and so we would all play together. John and I would play a lot of shows together. Um, Michael Penn – my my spouse uh, would play um, Fiona, yeah. Apple definitely did some shows, and Elliot, um, yeah, Elliot Smith would do shows. Uh, but also, but like for me, the biggest thing about Largo was that Monday nights were comedy nights, and because we just loved hanging out at Largo, we would go, uh, we would go every Monday and just see who, mm. just for the hell of it, and mm. see who was there, and so we were introduced to. Like every comedian that we're like totally in love with yeah. now, um, uh, Paula Tompkins, Annie Kindler, uh, Marilyn Ricecub, uh, uh Kathy Griffin, we'd see it all the time. Um, Patton, yeah, Oswald. Patton Oswald, yeah. Did I already say Paula Tompkins? You did, but yeah. he's worth mentioning yeah, twice. Yeah, he's he's good for two two mentions. <laughs> um, yeah, so all of the Mark Marin, I, I mean, I yeah. saw every, you know, I saw everybody there. Yeah. And but they were all like brand new, you know, like yeah, nobody right. knew. Right. <laughs> nobody yeah. Knew who the word they were. was not out yet. Yeah. Yeah. There was no word. Yeah. And and we were like it's amazing. We love these guys. Like we were so in love with these guys. Yeah. And you know, became friends with almost all of them. Right. What was uh, did you cross paths? Uh, I'm a she. I'm just a over-the-top Elliot Smith fan, and uh, so I, I have you I in the room I think I met here. Elliot a couple of times, but, yeah. I mean, he was really very quiet, very shy, like, obviously a very shut-down person. Yeah. And I know John worked with him, and John would play some shows, and I think John was good at kind of trying to bring him out a little bit, mm. and he was a great accompanist, accompany, whatever, I'm not even going to try to say that word. <laughs> he would accompany <laughs> <laughs> Elliot. Elliot. Um, and, you know, John was great at that. Like, John was sort of the, uh, I mean, I don't mean to demote him in any way, but, like, he was, uh, had a genius at being a sideman also, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, doing his own thing, because he, you know, he's like a one-man orchestra. That's Many's the time I would see him playing xylophone with his right hand and Mellotron with his left hand and, you know, maybe kicking a, you know, tambourine or something with his foot. <laughs> right, um, right. And, you know, that was entertaining in of itself. Right. Uh, I want to play, uh, can we talk about the, uh, the both? Oh, yes. For a second, I'm just going to play a little bit of, uh, for our audience. You 
As a solo artist, was it hard to start writing music with a collaborator again? Was that kind of difficult to do? No, actually, it's. I found it really. I mean, I think you really have to throw yourself into it um, yeah. and be very trusting and, you know, kind of make a, a pact with yourself that you're not going to cling to things just yeah. because they're your ideas you know that you have to be like you know what that's a better idea I'm going to throw out my my idea was that good for you yeah like I think a- it was it, it was it was very it was very liberating in a way to, yeah. to just go let's just take the best thing you know and uh, and let's you know and trust that um, you know that the the section that the that the other person has come up with is like that's like let's go in that direction. Like maybe it wouldn't have been the direction I would have taken in it, but I was also kind of tired of my own direction. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Right, right, right. Was it um, why why Ted Leo? Why was he the one that you're like? Oh, this is this is a, a guy that I I'm sim- simpatico with. I we get along and we have similar tastes, and uh, I feel like there's something here. What, what was it that made you? Because I'm sure you, you had those conversations a lot, like, oh, we should, you know, we should do something together. But what made this one, like, we should really, we, let's do this. Let's make this happen. Um, well, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I can still hear the song and it's distracting me. Fair enough. I'm going to turn it off then. <laughs> Which is... It's over. You know, and I don't know if it's that, like, oh, I just want to keep listening to my own wonderful music. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> I thought I'd torture you with Because I'm going, like, bit. why isn't my vocal louder? <clears throat> right, right, right. Um, well, Ted and I had, uh, we'd been touring together, and he was opening up for me doing kind of doing just a solo thing, him and an electric guitar. And I think that that sort of coincided with a vague feeling I was having of like, I'm kind of tired of my own stuff. Or I'm not even tired of my own stuff, but I don't know, sort of tired of like the business and the mindset of, you know, like you get into this mindset of, well, what should I do next? Is there, like, a thing I should right. do? Should I try to, like, really shake it up? Or right. should I try to do something, like, what do people want to hear from me? Which is just, like, an uncomfortable kind of mindset to have. And watching Ted, first of all, like, we had a great time on the road. He's a super fun, and he's yeah. a really great person. Like, he's yeah. a very nice person. And... Um, which, you know, and that, like, is a, makes a big difference just yeah. when you're traveling with somebody. And and seeing his show every every night and seeing how, like, first of all, he's a great, great, interestingly virtuosic guitar player. And he accompanies himself really, um, really in a really fulsome manner just – you know, he's he kind of is like a whole thing unto himself, just him and his voice. And I was really impressed with that. And, of course, my thought was I could just play bass with that and it would be a thing. Yeah, you yeah. Know, like that would be I – could, I could sort of picture what – in my mind's eye what a band with him would sound like if I was playing bass, which was my initial instrument. And I really love playing bass and really miss playing bass. And uh, there was one specific song that we ended up recording, which was uh, a new song of his called The Gambler. And and hearing that, I, I was like, this is what a band with us would sound like. Like, this is what it would sound like if we collaborated on songs. It just had, a, like, a harmonically had a feeling that was similar, uh, that I felt like there was some DNA of of mine in there and, then, mm. and DNA of his. Like, I could see how that, that would be a, a match. And and it was really like that w- was kind of exciting. I could yeah. just picture it, and and you know, in addition, I just you know during that tour, I had we were doing a couple of things together. Like there was a duet that I asked him to sing on, and and he was so much fun on stage too. So so yeah, between those three elements, like really having a a, a great friend and companion, you know, to tour with having somebody that was musically compatible and interesting and having somebody that just, you know, performance-wise was really fun on stage. Like, I, I was run. like, yeah. And then 
this vague feeling of like, I don't know what I want to do next anyway. Like, I don't, I'm not that excited about making another record of my own. Yeah. Or, you know, or I haven't yet become excited. But yeah. so I was very excited about this, this idea. So that's what, you know. Are you thinking about a second uh, record? Yeah, or? for sure. Cool. And, you know, we're also talking about writing a musical because he's like, He's like a musical theater nerd. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> that's great. So, so we've, we're, we're, yeah, we've already discussed it. We're that's amazing. Talking to you know, talking to uh, you know, kind of hammering out the basic plot. We haven't started writing songs yet, but like it's like a political thing, and that's perfect for him because he's he's very very political, very lefty, but <laughs> but really into musical theater, which is just bizarre. <laughs> And he's also very funny. And I'm like, that's also like a perfect storm of like, of right. course you want to write a musical with that guy. <laughs> right, right. Um, before I let you go, I wanted to um, ask you about this Christmas show that I'm really excited about. That's Me too. happening at Largo and the Fillmore and Santa Cruz and Boston and Terrytown and all these other yeah. places. What, what is the, uh, one, where can people get tickets? And two, what is it? Well, I, I did it a bunch of years in a row, and then the, for the last couple of years I haven't done it because it's it's just a giant ordeal to, yeah. to put on. But I'm doing it with Ted this year, so I'm, so I'm oh, like, fun. oh, good, so he can do half the work. Yeah. Um, because it really does, you know, comedy's a, a, a part of it and, it, and and I need somebody who I feel like is funny and yeah. can sort of figure stuff out. Um, there's different, it's like a variety show. Cool. And honestly, like, it's not that different from, you know, like a Paul F. Tompkins variotopia. Yeah. His uh, Christmas show the last couple years has been great. He's it's all been great. Uh, he can't do anything no, bad ever. Uh, he really, really can't. Um, so Paul is going to do the, the Largo shows. And so there's always, there, there'll be like a comedic element. And and uh, for almost all the shows, are, are we're going to have Suzanne Hoffs be, be the musical guest. Um, there, you know, obviously to some Christmas music and, and, you know, other special guests that, yeah. that, um, you know, I haven't really figured out. I'm sure, yeah, yeah, be, yeah. I'm sure there'll be somebody else added to the, to the Largo show. Sure. I'm sure. And where can people sort of get tickets and. I have no idea. I'm going to, I'm going to say that if you go to the, uh, the Largo, what is it? Largo dash LA org. I don't know. That's a uh, terrible address. Yeah. It's right. yeah no, that's <laughs> definitely not that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If I'm sure. Google Largo, Largo yeah. Amy man, Christmas yeah. show and come down and check it out. Something will happen. Um, thanks very much for coming in and Thank you. talking to me about books. Is there any, is there anything you want to, because uh, there one writer, I asked this of some of my guests, um, is there one writer that you've been told that you're supposed to be into, that you're supposed to love, and you just don't fucking get it? Like someone keeps on pushing this writer on you. Like I'll try again. Oh, that's funny. Uh, I don't. God, so so many, but I. I, mean, that ha- <laughs> I feel like that happens a lot. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, b- because there's there's these whole categories of things. Like I do. There's this a style that I really like. If you're not writing. In, in sort of like a repertorial style or of like yeah. if you if you have too much like I don't keep yourself out of it like that's how I don't want to know your style like don't have a style that's yeah my, right right but right. you know but then again like don't be all you know Hemingway and you know like you're an AP writer exactly um yeah any of that kind of magic realism stuff I've never I never really got into uh but I don't know. Like, name name some people. Who are who are we supposed to um, uh, who are we supposed to love? Well, I, I, we're supposed to love him, and I and I do love him. But David Foster Wallace turns a lot of people off. Uh, they find um, Infinite Jest just like oh, I prepo- and just insane, yeah, which I, I get. Couldn't, I couldn't write it. I couldn't read it. I yeah. get it. I get it. Oh, and um, any Thomas Pynchon. Oh, you know, I did actually. Okay. I finally read a Thomas Pynchon book. What did you because read? Because my brother was reading Thomas Thomas Pynchon, and I read. <laughs> uh, you mean the book that uh, his name I can't remember. It was it was the Not little Gravity's Rainbow, which I guess is the little one. Whatever uh, the tiny one is about the weird uh, underground an- ancillary postal service, like the where, like it's really actually I read really any of... it was kind of great. But, oh, okay, but I don't. But also. You're obviously writing a, an extended metaphor that only means something to you, or I'm, I, or I'm sure I'm dumb. Right. Like I, granted, I'm dumb, no. so I don't get it. But there, and I guess there is something to that. I mean, I do appreciate. Like, what is music? But like, it's an extended metaphor. You know, yeah, that yeah, yeah. Only means something to you. That's true. Uh, 
So I understand that, I guess. But it's, I, but it is. I always feel weird going into books like that where. I mean, once again, you know, like it's it's a little drug trippy influenced. Yeah, I'm assuming. But I don't know what you're like. Even if it is something that means only something to you, I kind of want to know what it means to you. But yeah, I'm sure there. I'm sure there are essays that written on what what it means to him. I wish but, I could remember the title. Anyway, it was the skinny <laughs> one because I'm not reading one of those big fat ones. Yeah, my Mason brother, Dixon, which yeah. is like 1,400 fucking pages. Yeah. It's just, my brother was like, "We should have a book club and read like read the right. same book." And I'm like, Thomas Pinch is like, there's no way. Yeah, no, it's exactly, no. it's exactly the thing that I can't, yeah. I can't read. <laughs> uh, Amy Mann's been my guest today. We talked about music and books and all kinds of stuff. Um, get her uh, record with Ted Leo. It's called The Both. Um, you can get it online and go to your independent music store and pick it up yourself. I was so lucky to have Amy Mann come into the studio. She was so fantastic. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview. Um, and uh, let's move on to something different, shall we? You've been read too. You heard an interview. Let's finish it off with something a little bit heavier. Is that cool? May we? I may. Uh, we're going to take a very short break, and we're going to come back with the, uh, the last bit of Reading Aloud. Guys, just a heads up. Brand new episodes of every show on the brand new Wolf Pop Network are available right now. For your consumption at www.wolfpop.com. Uh, off camera with Sam Jones. I was there too with Matt Gorley, the Rotten Tomatoes podcast, um, the Canon with uh, Amy Nicholson and Devin Faraci. There's so many new shows. There's so much great content to check out. So go to wolfpop.com or go to iTunes and dig in. Hey guys, it's Reading Aloud. I'm your host, Nate Cordry. This is the last piece of the first episode, and I wanted to include this piece in the pilot episode of the show because I wanted you, the audience member, to sort of get an idea of what the show is going to be about. So we have a comedy essay read, we have an interview, and then I wanted something a little bit heavier um, because I have all this great content that I found that I can't read at the UCB show because it's not comedy-based. And this is a per perfect example of that kind of content. Um, this is from the website Letters of Note. It's a collection of letters, like beautifully written letters. And it's a letter written by Ken Kesey, who wrote uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, and his son, in 1984, um, his son was a member of the wrestling team uh, for the University of Oregon, the Oregon Ducks. And they were headed to a wrestling tournament, and they're in a bus. And the bus, um, they're on a mountain road, and there was bad weather, and the bus went off the road. And one kid was killed, and uh, Ken Kesey's son, Jed, uh, was left brain dead um, from this accident. And then he, he passed away eventually in a couple days, but... Um, this letter was written by Ken Kesey to, uh, to five of his like, closest friends. And it's just heartbreaking, but it's so beautifully written as well. Um, and I asked my buddy Stephen Weber to come in and read it. Stephen is a really great actor and a good friend of mine. Uh, we worked together on this show, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, seven or eight years ago. And Stephen has such a beautiful voice, and he's a wonderful actor, and he's also a father. And I thought Stephen would be the perfect guy to read this letter. And uh, I was absolutely right. Here's Stephen. Dear Wendell and Larry, Ned and Bob and Gurney. Partners, it's been a bitch. I got to write and tell somebody about some stuff. And like I long ago told Larry, you're the best backboard I know. So indulge me a little. I am but hurt. We built the box ourselves, George Walker mainly, and Zane and Jed's friends and frat brothers dug the hole in a nice spot between the chicken house and the pond. Paige found the stone and designed the etching. You'd have been proud, Wendell, especially the box. Clear pine pegged together and trimmed with redwood. 
the handles of thick hemp rope, and you, Ed, would have appreciated the lining. It was a piece of Tibetan brocade given Mountain Girl by Owsley fifteen years ago, gilt and silver and russet phoenix bird patterns unfurling in flames. And last month, Bob, Zane was goose hunting in the field across the road and killed a snow goose. I told him to be sure to save the down. Susan Butkovich covered this in white silk for the pillow, while Faye and M.G. and Gretch and Candace stitched and stapled the brocade into the box. It was a double pretty day, like winter holding its breath, giving us a break. About 300 people stood around and sung from the little hymn books that Diane Kesey had Xeroxed. Everlasting arms, sweet hour of prayer, in the garden, and so forth. With all my cousins leading the singing and Dale on his fiddle. While we were singing Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, Zane and Kit and the neighbor boys that have grown up with all of us carried the box to the hole. The preacher is also the Pleasant Hill School superintendent and has known our kids since kindergarten. I learned a lot about Jed that I'd either forgotten or never known, like his being a member of the National Honor Society and finishing sixth in a class of more than a hundred. We sung some more. People filed by and dropped stuff in on Jed. I put in that silver whistle I used to wear with the Hopi cross soldered on it. One of our frat brothers put in a quartz watch guaranteed to keep beeping every 15 minutes for five years. Faye put in a snapshot of her and I standing with a pitchfork, all Grant Wood-esque in front of the old bus. Paul Foster put in the little leather-bound New Testament given him by his father who had carried it during his 65 years as a minister. Paul Sawyer read from Leaves of Grass, while the boys each hammered in the one nail they had remembered to put in their pockets. The betas formed a circle and passed the loving cup around, a ritual our fraternity generally uses when a member is leaving the circle to become engaged. Jed and Zane and I are all members, you understand, not to mention Hagen. And the boys lowered the box with these ropes George had cut and braided. Zane and I tossed in the first shovelfuls. It sounded like the first thunderclaps of revelations. But it's an earlier scene I want to describe for you all, as writers and friends and fathers, up at the hospital in cold gray Spokane. He'd finally started moving a little. Zane and I had been carrying plastic bags of snow to pack his head in, trying to stop the swelling that all the doctors told us would follow as blood poured to the bruised brain. And we noticed some reaction to the cold. And the snow I brushed across his lips to ease the bloody parch where all the tubes ran in caused him to roll his arms a little. Then more, then too much, with the little monitor lights bleeping faster and faster, and I ran to the phone to call the motel where I had just sent most of the family for some rest. You guys better get back over here. He's either going or coming. Everybody was there in less than five minutes. Chuck and Sue, Kit and Zane, Shan and her fiancé Jay, Jay's dad, Irby, Cheryl and her husband Bill, my mom, Faye, my whole family, except for my dead daddy and Grandma Smith down with age and Alzheimer's. Jed's leg was shaking with the force of his heartbeat. Kit and Zane tried to hold it. He was starting to go into seizures, like the neurosurgeon had predicted. Up till this time, everybody had been exhorting him to hang on, old-timer, stick it out. This thing can't pin you. You're too tough, too brave, sure it hurts. But you can pull through it, just quit your teeth and hang on. Now we could see him trying, fighting. We could see it in his clenching fists, his threshing legs. And then, oh, Jesus, we saw it in his face. The peacefully swollen, unconscious blank suddenly was filled with expression. He came back in. He checked it out 
and he saw better than we could begin to imagine how terribly hurt he was. His poor face grimaced with pain. His purple brow knitted, and his teeth actually did try to clench on the tubes. And then, my old buddies, he cried. The doctors had already told us, in every gentle way they could, that he was brain dead, gone for good. But we all saw it. The quick flicker back of consciousness. The awful hurt being realized. The tears saying, I don't think I can do her this time, Dad. I'm sorry. I truly am. And everybody said, it's okay, old Jetterdink. You know better than we do. Breathe easy. Go on ahead. We'll catch you later down the line. His threshing stopped. His face went blank again. I thought of old Jack Wendell, ungripping his hands, letting his fields finally go. The phone rang in the nurse's quarters. It was the doctor for me. He had just appraised all the latest readouts on the monitors. Your son is essentially dead, Mr. Kesey. I'm very sorry. And the sorrow rung absolutely honest. I said something. Zane picked up the extension and we watched each other while the voice explained the phenomena. We said we saw it also. And we're not surprised. Thank you. Then the doctor asked a strange thing. He wanted to know what kind of kid Jed was. Zane and I both demanded what he meant. He said he was wondering how Jed would have felt about being an organ donor. Our hearts both jumped. He would love it. Jed's always been as generous as they come. Take whatever you can use. The doctor waited for our elation to ease down, then told us that to take the kidneys, they had to take them before the life support was turned off. Did we understand? After a while, we told him we did. So Faye and I had to sign five copies apiece on a cold Formica countertop while the machine pumped out the little beep, 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 in the dim tangle of technology behind us. In all my life, waking and dreaming, I've never imagined anything harder. Everybody went in and told him goodbye, kissed his broken nose, shook his hand, squeezed his big old hairy foot, headed down the corridor. Somebody said it might be a good idea to get a script for some kind of downers. We'd all been up for about 40 hours, either in the chapel praying like maniacs or at his bedside talking to him. We didn't know if we could sleep. Chuck and I walked back to the intensive care ward to ask. All the doctors were there, bent over a long list, phoning numbers, matching blood types, ordering nurses. In such a hurry, they hardly had time to offer sympathy. Busy, and justly so. But the nurses, the nurses bent over their clipboards, could barely see to fill out the forms. They phoned the hotel about an hour later to tell us it was over, and that the kidneys were in perfect shape. That was about four in the morning. They phoned again a little after six to say that the kidneys were already in two young somebodies. What a world. We've heard since that they used 12 things out of them, including corneas. And the red-winged blackbirds sing in the budding green-gauge plum tree. With love, Ken. P.S. When Jed's wallet was finally sorted out of the debris and confusion of the wreck, it was discovered 
that he had already provided for such a situation. He'd signed the place on his driver's license, indicating that he wanted to be an organ donor in the event of... etc., etc. One man gathers what another man spills. That was Stephen Weber reading um, a letter written by Ken Kesey about the death of his son in 1984. It's so heartbreaking, but so beautifully written. And uh, and I know we're kind of going on on a sad note. God, this music is sad. Can we t- can we turn this music down? Whew, thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, heavy guys, we're getting heavy. Um, Thanks for listening to to Reading Aloud. I, I wanted to give you a cross-section of what the show is. So um, apologies for me getting really sad towards the end. But uh, but that's what this podcast is going to be. It's going to be a mishmash of sort of everything. Um, but thanks to Stephen Weber for doing that. And thanks to Amy Mann for coming in. And thanks to Brian Stack as well for reading that amazing Simon Rich piece. Um, you've been listening to Reading Aloud on the Wolf Pop Network. Um, my theme music is Possessed by Paul James. You can check out his website at ppjrecords.com or follow him on Twitter. He's fantastic. His name is Conrad Wirt, and he's an amazing musician. Anyway, I'm really glad that I'm able to use his music as my intro and outro music. Um, there'll be a new show coming up very soon, so check back here at wolfpop.com. And again, get Wolf in White Van. Wolf in White Van. That's the book you need to get. Get it. Read it. And then send us an email at the Reading Aloud Podcast, Reading Aloud Podcast at gmail.com. We really want to hear from you. Uh, please be a part of the show. Um, be, be included. Be a part of the party, man. Um, so thanks so much for being here and. Uh, We'll see you next time. Oh, you hit me like a hurricane. Wolfpop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.